Before we dive into today's show, we want to know what you think of the podcast at DC and get your ideas for the topics we should be covering going forward. Whether this is your first time tuning in or you're a seasoned listener, go to tinyurl.com slash the podcast at DC. There you'll find our listener survey. Your feedback will help us improve our content and production quality, and it'll also allow us to better serve district residents. And now for the episode. Welcome to the podcast at DC, hosted by The Lab at DC. The Lab is an applied scientific team in the executive office of the mayor of the District of Columbia. We use science to learn what works for Washingtonians. I'm your host, Sam Quinney. Universal basic income involves regularly giving cash without conditions directly to everyone within a geographic or political territory on a long-term basis. The idea has become a widely discussed measure in policy circles around the world. On this episode of the podcast, I'll be talking with Ioana Marinescu, an assistant professor of economics at the University of Pennsylvania. Ioana reviewed the evidence on the impact of unconditional cash transfers in the United States. We'll also be joined by Dina Hassan, the Director of Policy and Program Support at DC's Department of Human Services, or DHS for short. Ioana and Dina, welcome to the podcast at DC. Thank you for having us, Sam. Thank you for having me. Uh, so, Iona, let's start with you. Uh, you study policies that improve people's economic well-being. How did you get involved in that sort of research, and, and what really interests you about it? So, you know, I've been interested in people's material well-being for a very long time because I think this is the basis. You know, it's like Maslow's hierarchy of mm -hmm. needs. You have You need to cover your basic needs before you can go further and, you know, get extra education, get, you know, involved in all sorts of things. If your very basic needs for food and shelter and things like that aren't covered, it's just so much harder to go extend yourself and do something more uh, with your life. And so, you know, I've always thought, well, how can we make it so that as many people as possible get th these uh, basic needs covered and therefore have a form of economic security. And how has that translated into your research so far in your career? So, you know, I've been studying a bunch of different programs, but some examples include um, unemployment insurance. So that's really the idea. Well, look, you lose your job. You lose your main source of, you know, livelihood for most people. Well, what happens then? And without unemployment insurance for most people who don't have savings and live hand to mouth, it would be catastrophic. They wouldn't be able to cover their basic uh, needs, more or less. And so unemployment insurance kicks in to help them main, you know, still pay their rent or their mortgage and just kind of maintain, more or less, you know, it's much less than they would were earning before, but kind of make do in the meantime before they find a new job. So that, that's, uh, that's an example. And more recently, I've uh, been researching universal basic income, which is much more broad because it's not for people who lost their jobs. It's really for everybody. And it's, you know, something that people get cash without conditions all the time. So that means that, you know, it's always there. And of course, we can talk about the level, but if that level where 
you know, sufficient for a very basic, that's why it's called basic income. <laughs> that means that that's something that people can always count on. And, you know, one of the issues with other programs like uh, in unemployment insurance is you have to qualify. And sometimes those qualification rules, depending on the programs, are complicated, mm -hmm. which constitutes a hurdle. So it's harder for people to sign up for a program that they're allowed to be in because of all the administrative hurdles. And with a program like Universal Basic Income, it is so simple that, you know, it's just very easy and straightforward for everybody to get it. And therefore, ensuring potentially a more rock-solid basis of economic security. Dina, uh, for you, you work on programs designed to improve housing and economic stability in the Department of Human Services here in D.C. Yeah. Uh, why is that work so important to you, and how did you get interested in it? So we have maybe, what, 30 minutes? <laughs> so I'll cut my comments the, short. Yeah, the, but, uh, the so, abridged version. Uh, <laughs> so um, my background is primarily in um, Medicaid and insurance for um, underserved populations. But in my research and in working there, of course, we all know that there are other things that impact a person's health. And um, drive them to the ER and to a hospital and to a doctor's care. So um, I started digging and looking at all of the things that impact that and landed at DHS because that is the agency in D.C. that's responsible for um, our crisis response for homeless services and economic benefits. And as I looked into all of those things, um, it landed me into the benefit cliff conversation, right? Because as we look at providing resources for our families, we try to connect them with high growth jobs and different um, ways to increase their income. But as their income goes up, we were finding that their net resources were going down. And we had all kind of accounts from different employers and other stakeholders where they said that they had all these opportunities available to our clients. Mm. And clients were saying, no, I'll pass on those extra hours or pass on that promotion. So we wanted to know why. Um, and then... In my current role at DHS, I'm, I'm really focusing on policy. So but then my next question was, what policy levers can we do to help mitigate those benefit cliffs and protect um, families from um, further going into poverty? Great. Well, I think we'll have a lot to talk about then, given both of those interest areas. And you mentioned the word benefit cliff. Really briefly, what is that? And how should our listeners understand what a benefits cliff is? That sounds pretty severe. It does, and I'm glad you asked that because I think that a lot of times um, in this industry, in, I guess in most, we use jargon um, that seems normal to us, but to others it, it does not translate well. So, Sam, the benefit cliff is where an increase in earnings result in a sudden and sharp loss of public benefits for example, Medicaid, child care, mm -hmm. earn income tax credit, so that the family is off, actually worse off as far as resources in the home um, as a result of bringing in the additional income. Does that make sense? Yeah, okay. yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, it seems concerning, but it, it makes sense. So before we go really deep into the details of this, Siona, could you tell us exactly kind of what your research on basic income or universal basic income is and kind of what the basic question you are trying to answer is. So, you know, in my own research, I've been looking at the impact of 
it's a so first of all, let's define universal basic right. income. Yes. <laughs> so a universal basic income is cash that is given to people without any conditions. So there is no requirement as far as working or training or any other kind of requirements. And it's usually given on a regular basis. And it's for everybody within a certain jurisdiction. So, you know, if it's a city, everybody in the city. If it's a state, everybody in the state. It's a country, everybody in the country. So that's the universal part. Everybody mm -hmm. gets it. And it goes with the no conditions, right? Because if there there's no conditions, then everybody can, uh, can get it. So what I was interested in my uh, research recently is looking at how this impacts work. Because the argument is, well, if you give people money for nothing, and if most people have as main reason why they're working, that they want to make a living, get some money, then giving them that money might discourage them from working. If not, drop out altogether, maybe reduce their hours because now they have more income so they can afford to work less. And we call that the income effect. <laughs> That's mm -hmm. the jargon in economics. If you have more income, you can afford to work less. So we wanted to know well, how relevant is that mm -hmm. you know, on the ground. So what we did is we went to look at data from Alaska in the US, which is a state that has a basic income-like uh, benefit. It's called the Alaska Permanent Fund Dividend, and they get it once a year. Everybody gets it. Mm. The only condition is to have lived in Alaska for a year. So it's literally for every Alaskan resident. And so what we do is we compare how much people in Alaska are working versus people in other similar states mm. to Alaska. So we look at basically Alaska's twin states and we compare Alaska to its twin states. And so what we found are two things. First, people don't stop working. So the share of people who work as a share of the population is the same. Like, and mm. in every year since this benefit started, which was in 1982, the share of people working in Alaska is about exactly identically the same as in Alaska's twin states. But we also find some evidence for a reduction in hours so that people, mm. while they work, they work a bit less. So mm. they might be working part-time or working fewer hours. So we do see in particular an increase in part-time work in Alaska compared to its uh, twin states. And so, you know, there is, you know, some evidence of a, a reduction in the number of hours, but people keep working at the same rate as, uh, as everywhere else. So in, in that example in Alaska, everybody, regardless of income, uh, employment, anything is getting a set amount of money every year for, um, for as long as it's been since the, the policy was implemented. Dina, how does something like that, where everybody's just getting a minimum payment or get everybody's getting a payment, differ from our current system of economic benefits and other benefits, either in D.C. or just nationally? That's a, a big question. Yeah. So let's see how to tackle that. In D.C., our public benefits, as in most states, are means-tested, so they're not available to anyone regardless of their income. So the, the benefit cliff phenomenon um, is a result of the policies and practices of mean-tested programs not being aligned. So when we look at the benefit cliffs for a family of one adult and two children, we find that families cliff or use benefits far before they reach the threshold of meeting their basic needs without um, public subsidies. So 
for um, once the family reaches about $23,000 a year, they will cliff or lose their eligibility for TANF benefits. Mm -hmm. Once they reach $27,000 a year, around there, they lose eligibility for SNAP. And then once they reach around $45,000, they reach um, or they lose their access to Medicaid or other um, health care unsubsidized benefits that we then are eligible for um, via the um, health exchange. Um, and those are real. Those are mm -hmm. real. Um, and um, for families, because of that, many of them decide not to take on um, new jobs. And for you, Dina, when DHS kind of looks at this either in data or anecdotally working with families, does it seem like families really are know about these cliffs or feel these or perceive them in one way or another? That's a really timely question. I think families anecdotally know where cliffs are just from talking with friends and families. And I, I always say that families are smarter than we give them credit for. People are used to surviving, right? Um, and they know how far their dollars can stretch, uh, particularly when it impacts the health and the livelihood of their children. So. We are, um, and, and understanding this benefit cliff and marginal tax rates um, and that whole phenomenon more, we are looking at um, different programs that funnel people or encourage people into jobs that can help them increase their income. But we do know that increasing income, families also need to be aware of where they'll lose certain benefits. So the question for us policy-wise is, how do we first educate um, our families on where the benefit cliffs are in, mm -hmm. in black and white um, without um, word of mouth or just having a feeling for it? Um, and then talking with them about, okay, if you cliff here, this is how long it may take you to build your income back up. Mm -hmm. These are also the other social, social supports we have in place to support you through that build up. And there's a lot of work, um, similar work going on in, um, with the Atlanta Fed Reserve, where, and I think it's also in um, Bates County in Florida where they show families, they have a, um, a client-facing, um, caseworker-facing benefit calculator, where they mm. can show families exactly where they cliff and then how long their income trajectory will be. One example they always give is a, for a client who's going to either an LPN, RN, or CNA. Um, Do you say what those are? Sure, thanks. A registered nurse, a licensed ah. practical nurse, or certified nurse's assistant. And I've picked the healthcare field because that's, of course, what I'm most familiar with, but they are different um, education levels and different income trajectories. So the RN is the, requires the most education and um, has the highest income, but, and then I think the CNA is the less, least income, less education required, but their income doesn't, the big income for the RN doesn't hit right away. Mm -hmm. So as you're in school for a longer period of time, your income will go down while you're in school. And after you graduate, your income may not um, be any higher initially than it is for a CNA, but your trajectory for income growth is substantially higher. Mm. Um, so the tool that we're looking to develop now, we're looking at um, a program being offered by the Assistant Secretary for Policy and Evaluation within the U.S. Health and Human Services, is helping us develop a tool that's client-facing, but then also um, the tools and the technical assistance that caseworkers need to support their families through it, to educate them on what the cliffs mean and other supports that are available to them to um, encourage them to increase their income. So, you know, just to jump in, because of the existence of these cliffs and what Dina just said, these cliffs discourage people from taking on 
additional hours or new higher paying jobs because if they did so they would lose say food stamps or medicaid mm -hmm. and that they might not come off better economically because of the loss of those benefits mm -hmm. and that's where something like basic income which is also known as negative income tax uh, by the way mm -hmm. and so it's, it's an idea that's been around for a while that economists like and the the key reason for liking it is the benefit cliff issue because if you have something like a basic income because you always receive the same basic income no matter your circumstances that also means if you get that new higher paying job or even your hours go up so you're making more you're not losing the benefit and therefore there's no benefit cliff therefore from that perspective there's no reason to work less if you have an opportunity because you get to keep your dollars of benefits just mm -hmm. the same. And I, I don't want to lose that point because this is super complicated um, and hard to understand. Mm -hmm. And it's not even that families don't understand the complexities between all the benefits they're eligible for. We don't. The government often mm. doesn't understand yeah. because we're trained in our specialized programmatic areas. So I may know soup to nuts what TANF is, what the thresholds are, income eligibility, how many families, that kind of thing, but be clueless on what happens with SNAP or child care subsidies, et cetera. So um, when we first looked at the benefit cliff um, calculator, it was first done for us to understand where our cliffs were, which was mind-blowing a little bit, um, so that we were better versed on how our programs interacted with others. And then the second phase will be to then present it to um, our families in a way that actually makes sense in, in real language and usable terms mm -hmm. um, um, in a way that factors in the anxiety of seeing where cliffs exist. Yeah, absolutely, because it's super important and that we know from lots of behavioral researches and, and experiments, some of which that we've run in the lab, these burdens of paperwork or being having to apply or reapply for things like TANF aren't just a simple, I need it, I qualify, I'm going to go do it. There's all of these factors that play in and that are really harder for people with extra stress in their lives that may come with uh, having low income or just even having a family in general, mm -hmm. that it's not that simple. So. so I'd like to jump up on this and say that basic income, so one advantage is avoids the benefit cliff, so that's for the people who are envisioning perhaps making more. But there's another thing which is simply coverage. So what you just said yeah. about the difficulty of filling and requalifying for various uh, benefits means, and we can calculate that there is, you know, substantial share of people who qualify for certain benefits who don't get it. Mm. And so basic income basically <laughs> is going to uh, cover those uh, holes in our social protection system where there are people who are currently eligible for certain benefits but don't get it due to the administrative complexity. Mm. Iona, where has something like basic income been tried, um, either in the U.S. or internationally? You mentioned Alaska earlier about do we have other examples or other pieces of evidence right. about how this might work and mm -hmm. what the effects are? So uh, Alaska currently is the longest uh, running, larger scale thing in terms of, uh, it's not basic income, just to be clear, it's a cash transfer that every Alaskan gets every year, but you know, therefore it resembles a, a, a basic income. And can we pause there for one, one second? Are there differences, I guess the words that I've heard or read yeah. between things like, universal basic income, basic income, unconditional cash transfers, 
negative income tax. Yes. Are, are these th should we think of these interchangeably? So when we say basic income or universal basic income, we're talking about the benefit. We're not talking about how you're going to finance uh, that benefit. From a government's from perspective. From the government's perspective. Whereas the negative income tax includes a basic income as well as a tax that comes with it so that we can pay for that benefit from the government's perspective. And so that's the negative income tax is a basic income, but with an attached way of, uh, of paying for it. Oh, great. And what yeah. about an unconditional cash transfer? Uh, so that's also, to me, is essentially the same as a universal basic income. Now, you could make the nuance that uh, the term basic income implies that it's an amount that's high enough for your basic needs. For the purpose of doing my research, I decided that we don't need to be that restrictive because, you know, you want to understand the effects on people. And I don't think that's necessarily like a big threshold. So we want to look at smaller, bigger nuance. But I think oftentimes, certainly in a more concrete policy sense, people, when they talk about basic income, there is that meaning attached to it that it should be big enough to cover basic needs. And for example, in the case of Alaska, that's not the case. Hmm. So... It's a per person benefit, so it includes children, and it's about a thousand two thousand dollars. So you know, it's not a lot, but it does add up compared to other benefits. So compared to earned income tax credit, many families get much more in their permanent fund than in the whole year of earned income tax hmm. credit. So let's say a family of five, two thousand dollars, ten thousand yeah. dollars. So, you know, but nevertheless, just by itself and certainly for a single individual, for example, it definitely isn't enough to, to live on. So, you know, that's something just to keep in mind because I think the full extent of the notion of universal basic income is that the basic in there means some level, and we can debate what the level is, but, yeah. you know, that's sufficient uh, to uh, live on. And, and I think an, another layer of complexity is that you know, we have benefits already. So you might ask, what is the level of the basic income that you could live on if we cut all the other benefits is one question. Hmm. But if we're asking, given the benefits that are already there and we add this thing on top, how much do you need to live? That might be a different amount. Mm -hmm. And that's why, as far as research goes, I think it's too restrictive to just look at a uh, uh, cash benefit that is sufficient for basic life because it comes on top of other benefits that mm -hmm. people have and that together potentially, uh, you know, could be enough to, uh, to cover your basic needs. I'm glad you asked that question because we've had a lot of academic type talks about that, the terms and um, including who should be eligible for it, what the, the uh, actual um, cash transfer should be. And in DC, we've come to a couple. We've come to a couple. I think consensus around the terms. The, the UBI would be available to anyone regardless of their income. So, regardless if you make seventy thousand dollars a year or one hundred twenty thousand dollars a year, you would each get the same amount of money, hundred dollars. The other um, type of cash transfer we were talking about is that um, your the amount of money transferred to you would depend on what your current income is. Mm -hmm. So, if the basic um, level um, of income you need to meet basic needs was $100 and one family made 40, they would get 60. If another family made $10 um, per year, they would get 90. So it's, it's trying to put everyone up to the same level of income that they um, make per year. And then for non-conditional transfers, we were defining that as um, people get the money and can use it however they want to. So um, 
which is different from how we normally administer public benefits, where SNAP is only for food, TANF is cash, Medicaid is for health benefits. Mm-hmm. It would be giving people $100 and saying, you do with it as you please, because we trust um, that you know where you need to spend this money. And there hasn't been a lot of, um, some negative research about the use of UBIs, thinking that people would use it for um, drugs or for different things that don't actually um, contribute to their health. But research has found that that's not the case. Mm-hmm. Yeah. People take the money and use it um, in a way that actually benefits their family and themselves um, to reach um, optimal well-being. Yeah, not outcomes. the necessarily the apocryphal steak and lobster. Right, uh, right. Things like that. Well, so let's, let's actually, get into that. Let me ju- jump into that. Yeah. So it's really interesting if you think universal basic income, including negative income tax, and actually I want to talk about those experiments because there were experiments yes, yeah, with definitely. negative income tax. So in the negative income tax scheme, basically everybody gets this cash, but on top of that, there is a, a tax so that, you know, you know, whatever, let's say in the simplest amount, let's say you have, I don't know, a 10% tax for everybody. Mm-hmm. So um, essentially, if you're a rich person and you pay 10% of your income, that's a lot of money, much more than the cash benefit that, that you're getting. Mm. So certainly in that scheme, what you have to understand is that even though everyone, including billionaires, gets that $100, let's say, the billionaire is paying 10% of their income, which is way greater, you know, than than $100. Mm -hmm. So on net, they're not getting anything. They're paying a tax. So that's just something to to remember when we're talking about basic income, that even though, yeah, you have this cash benefit that is the same for everybody, in most financing schemes we can think about to pay for it from the government perspective, higher income individuals would pay more into it than what they're getting. And that's just the way that the generally the system works. Mm-hmm. For most things you know, that we have, people are getting all sorts of benefits like healthcare, this and that. And usually high income people pay more for it so that on net, they often are net contributors to the system. Mm-hmm. They're still getting a benefit, but they're paying more. And whereas the lower income people are getting perhaps the same benefit, but you know aren't contributing in the same way. So just like just, I think Absolutely. that's useful to clarify because it's not it's not this foreign concept. Much of our policy, much of our taxation, is built on this pro- this idea of what has traditionally been called progressive policy right. or progressive taxation. And it's very intuitive because it's the idea of ability to pay. Yeah. You know, like some mm-hmm. people have a higher ability to contribute for all the things you want to do together and sort of the received wisdom has been that therefore they should pay more. You know, how much more? That's something we can yeah. debate, but you know, they have higher ability to pay so they should pay more. So back to the negative income tax. So there has been an experiment in the late 70s, uh, actually randomized control trial, which is very much like, you know, do a drug trial to see, well, how people would react with this negative income tax, which again includes this basic income style of benefit that you get it no matter what, and then you'd be exposed to a tax uh, on top of that. And so um, uh, looking at that, one of the effects of that was an increase in education for the children of these families, especially Mm. among lower income families. And so that shows that uh, this money had those positive effects on families and therefore was spent in ways that ultimately 
you know, contributed to that effect. So that doesn't necessarily mean the money was spent on education directly, but in such ways that ultimately helped the children uh, achieve uh, better grades and higher levels of education. Mm -hmm. So that's very important thing to keep in mind because this was pretty large at the time, the largest mm -hmm. social experiment that had ever been done on a question like mm -hmm. that and, you know, has shown those uh, positive uh, effects on education for lower income families. A lot of what your work or what you've summarized in some of your work are things that go back all the way to the 70s or the 80s in the Alaska example. What are some of the general outcomes that are measured by those? And what do we know about their effects when we look at some of the different pilots? Right. So collectively, if you look at all the different experiences that have been tried with unconditional cash transfers, what you find first is what is the impact on work? And there, it's not clear because on the one hand, giving people more money might make them work less because now they can afford to work less. But on the other hand, if somehow that addresses the benefit cliffs that we talked about earlier, mm -hmm. this could actually encourage them to work more. So it's depending on what the benefit uh -huh. is, it's not completely clear what it would do. Now, in practice, just looking across studies, what you see is that having this unconditional cash transfer either has no effect on work or has a small effect of reducing mostly hours. So mm -hmm. people usually don't stop working, but they might, in some cases, uh, reduce the number of hours mm -hmm. uh, that they're working. So that's, you know, for uh, work. So that's the first result from the literature. Then the other thing I mentioned earlier is about the increase in education and all outcomes. So for the children, and that's especially true in the most disadvantaged families. Mm. It's been found across a number of studies. An improvement in health and especially mental health. Right? So in Native American reservations, a lot of them have income from the casino that mm -hmm. they're running. And every member of the tribe gets the same income no matter what. And mm -hmm. so that's in the sense in which it's similar to a basic income. And similar to Alaska, it sounds exactly. like. Except that the Alaskan casino is the oil reserves yes. or things <laughs> right. like that, right? Exactly. So it's very similar idea. And so what has been found there is that this one had no impact on work. It's more than the Alaska Permanent Fund, but it improved mental health and reduced drug and alcohol use uh, among youth. So I think that's a very important result because many people are concerned that with this extra money, it could be ill-used, but what you observe is exactly the opposite, mm. that it has helped people deal with these issues. And then from those Native American studies, you also see one of the most recent ones, which I think is fascinating, is an increase in civic participation. So an increase in voting for the next generation, not for the parents, but as these children who have fewer psychological problems, uh, who had gotten more education grow up, they are more likely to vote. And the effect is such that it really contributes to closing the gap in participation between high-income and low-income huh. individuals. And I think that, you know, thinking that uh, that from a, you know, you are a democracy, you want everybody to express their opinion, but oftentimes low-income people are disempowered. This is one of those policies that can contribute to hmm. bridging that gap and ensuring that you know lower income individuals do participate politically. So there's one of the things that, that I want to get both 
Dina, your perspective as a policymaker and Iona, your perspective as a researcher, but you mentioned a number of different outcomes across a number of different studies that I know across a number of different decades even, but things like employment, things like hours worked or income, but also, so those, you know, very economic factors, but also factors like educational attainment, civic participation, health, um, and some of them moving in different directions, it sounds like, um, at least in some of the studies. Dino, as, as you're thinking through how you design policies in DHS or district-wide, how do you weigh those like potential outcomes if they're not all really clear in one direction? Looking at a person or a family's well-being outside of just their work productivity or outside mm-hmm. of the hours that they're working, and I really want us to really pay attention to that the, the impact, the, the positive impact that can happen when families don't work as many hours. So mm. because they're not working as many hours, they can invest more time into their children, invest more time in their community, which the net effect then for all of us, for our community, is that we are better. And I, mm. I think that's something that we don't want to um, forget. But for DHS, as we're looking at how we support our families and all of our clients in the most holistic way, We are looking at putting a two-generational approach on every program that we have. So that means that all the policies that we have, we're looking at not only the head of households or the direct recipients of the public benefit, but then also their children and how that impacts generational wealth and health of Mm. our clients. So from a policy perspective, the first thing that we need to do is first um, understand our policies Mm. to make sure that we are clear on how they work and dance and jive with each other mm-hmm. first, and then from them, then figure out what the, the small things that we can change. I think that we're pretty clear on some of the local edits and changes that we can, modifications that we can make with our local benefits. What's been apparent to us now is that a lot of the benefits that we want to change and a lot of the policies that we want to modify require federal waivers or require federal approval. Mm-hmm. And that's a wall that we keep hitting. Um, there haven't, we haven't found a lot of states that have secured waivers like this. There was, I think, a proposal that came out of the Administration for Children and Families where they were looking to launch demos that would allow states to waive the clear firewalls between blending funds amongst programs. So to be able to create a little bit more like of, instead of a combined. separate food assistance, separate mm-hmm. health assistance, but one closer to this basic income right. or or combined benefit, right. yeah. a combined, combined benefit, benefit that would say that we're going to take the amount of money you would have received from SNAP and TANF and Medicaid, lump together, and then provide it to you monthly to then pay for your health insurance and your food and et cetera in a way that best benefits your family. But to do that, that that's that will require the federal government to say, okay, we'll waive some requirements around how you can use the money. I think we have a little more flexibility on how we use TANF funds and our our locally administered child care subsidies. But for SNAP in particular, we haven't seen another state that's been able to do that. I think there was some type of modification that happened in the 80s in Minnesota, but that was before we did the big welfare reforms in 1996. So that's something that we're we're still struggling with to see how we can do that. In D.C., as we're looking at ways to address the, the portion of our population that's, that's still at poverty level or still requiring some public benefits, which is about a third of our population, we have looked at some type of combined benefit that targets our families that receive economic public benefits and those that also receive housing subsidies to hmm. see if we combine the amount of money we're putting into housing, paying someone's rent and food and 
cash and education and all that into one benefit, what would that mean and how could we improve our families and how could we actually work with the lab to evaluate the impact of that mm -hmm. of um, short term but then also long term on our clients. But doing that requires a partnership with the, with the federal government. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so it sounds like though in, in motivation, DHS really doesn't stick to only employment or only income is what matters. It's this focus on not just these other aspects of it, but both generations of it, not just the parent and their outcomes in health or education or anything like that, but what we think is going to be best for the rest of their family across all of those things. If we want to adequately and successfully address poverty, it cannot just be just this generation. I mean, we all know that we stand on the shoulders of our ancestors and our, our mommies and our dads and et cetera before. So um, generational wealth is a thing, and it's something that, I mean, it's not just the money, it's also social networks. I mean, it, it's a whole complex soup. So just focusing on the carrots or one ingredient of the soup will not necessarily change the taste. For the <laughs> that I haven't eaten breakfast, so I'm probably eating that now. <laughs> um, but you have to look at every ingredient in that soup if you want to have a really, really good tasting soup. I find it interesting, and I'm really quite pleased that there seems to be a resurgence of poverty reduction pilots and initiatives. And that for D.C., that's pretty interesting because, I mean, generally D.C. is a pretty resource-rich place. Um, we have a lot of public benefits for our families, but we still have a poverty rate of about, what, 17% of our population. So we still have a lot of work to do. So we're trying to figure out what is it that we're missing here. So it is um, encouraging to see the pilots that are happening in Stockton, California, and the pilot that's happening in Mississippi, the Magnolia Mothers Project. And I think there's also something happening in Columbia University where looking, they're looking at how the income impacts the fetal development of the mommies getting the, the additional money, that gets me excited because people are now talking about it. And we do know that the UBI is now a thing, a term that's talked about even in families and at tables because of... Andrew uh, Yang. Andrew yeah, Yang, Andrew yeah, Yang, yeah, right? So now people are actually thinking about it. So it's more, it's, it's leaving the academic setting, leaving the, the high policy, policy want kind of conversation and now being real to, uh, to everyday families. In totality and looking at all of these different pilots and different outcomes, it sounded like earlier on that you tended to put more weight on these other outcomes like educational attainment, civic participation, health benefits, than purely the economic outcomes that showed up in some of the studies. Is that accurate or how should we think of the, the totality of the evidence on, on basic income? I think, you know, all of that matters, frankly, and depending on the policy maker's intent and what is the current priority mm -hmm. that perhaps hasn't been covered yet, they might have a different view about what's important right now and given what else you know we have uh, we have brewing. But I think it's important to know the totality of that evidence in order to make up your mind about whether you might want to have some trials, some experimentation, so that we can figure out how to do better. Hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Iona, Dina, thank you for being on the podcast at DC. Thank you. Thank you for having us. Thanks for listening to the podcast at DC, a production of The Lab at DC. This episode was produced by Nellie Moore and edited by Danforth Webster. Music is provided by Pure Grease. 
If you liked what you heard, visit us on our website at thelab.dc.gov and follow us on Twitter at at thelab underscore DC for more information on our work. Until next time, I'm Sam Quinney.